0: Hi, Unichurch. Today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a code tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this, Said, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a coat outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that coat? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their clothes over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the wall while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve.
1: Thanks for reading for us, Adrian. Uh, Joshua Bell is one of the world's greatest violinists. Years ago, as an experiment, he put on a baseball cap and dressed in casual clothes. He went incognito into a busy train station in Washington, DC. He opened his violin case and began to play. One of the world's most celebrated violinists began to play some of the most famous pieces of music ever written just to see if anybody would notice, to see if they would be able to recognise the beauty of his music, even in an unexpected place. Joshua Bell played for a total of about 45 minutes. He played six Bach pieces on a Stradivarius violin worth $3.5 million. As he played, thousands of people walked past him, A few paused on their busy commute to admire the music before moving on. Some even threw a few dollars into his violin case before hurrying off to catch their train. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed. There was no applause. There was no recognition that a world-class performance of some of the most intricate pieces of music ever written had just taken place. It's an interesting experiment about whether we recognize talent in an unexpected context. Do we recognize greatness when it's right in front of us? Our passage tonight, as Caitlin said, is often referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's often read or preached the Sunday before Easter known as Palm Sunday, which refers to the branches being laid at Jesus' feet as he enters the city. In this passage, Jesus is making a bold statement about who he is. He is announcing to the world that he is king. But do his disciples and the crowd know this? Do they recognize Jesus as king? Do they understand what kind of king he is? Our challenge today as we listen to God speak to us through his word will be to recognize Jesus as king. It will be to receive him as king and to respond to him as the king he tells us that he is. Let's get started by setting a little bit of background into our passage in Mark 11. By the time we reach chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, Jesus is at the end of a long journey. The journey began about nine months before when he began to zigzag through Galilee and then Samaria, Perea, and finally Judea, as that map shows. As he does, Jesus heals people He casts out demons. He teaches about the coming of God's kingdom. And he ticks off the religious leaders, the Pharisees, big time. By now, Jesus has already told his disciples three times that he will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and that he will be killed. Jesus knows he is nearing the end of his ministry and his life and that it's all going to go down in Jerusalem. And so we find ourselves now joining in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And we'll notice that everything about his entrance is planned. It's intentional. It's deliberate. And it's Jesus himself who is orchestrating it all. So let's see how he does it, and we'll look at the passage tonight in three scenes. The first is scene one, the preparation. From verse one, we learn that they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. At the end of the previous chapter in Mark, we learn that Jesus is coming from a town called Jericho. This journey from Jericho to Jerusalem is just over 36 kilometers long. That's about the distance from Belgrave to St. Jude's. I know some of you may have come from base camp. That's how long that journey is. Imagine walking from Belgrave to church on foot. Most of that journey would have been uphill and it would take you well over eight hours. And Jesus would have been traveling with his disciples. Often we think about the 12 disciples who are the 12 that Jesus personally called to follow him and they were the closest to him. But when the gospels talk about Jesus' disciples, that includes more than just the 12. It's all those who listened to Jesus' call to follow him. This meant literally walking with Jesus as he traveled from town to town. I wonder how many people Jesus collected on his way to Jerusalem. After all, his fame had been spreading throughout the region. Jesus' healing and teaching was causing a stir, and crowds seemed to gather wherever he went. And now Jesus leads his growing entourage to Jerusalem. If you think about it, if Jesus is a king, having an entourage following him around is actually pretty fitting. After all, modern-day celebrities have their own entourages. They're constantly surrounded by... Bodyguards keeping the paparazzi away, their agent, their stylist, someone who manages their social media, maybe a personal trainer and a nutritionist as well. Uh, I read an article that said that part of Justin Bieber's 20-person entourage included someone specifically hired to hold his pizza and drink while he performed. Um, Personally, I think Jesus probably held his own drink, but who knows? (laughs) Anyway, so Jesus is making this huge journey with his entourage from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is his destination. But before he gets there, Jesus pauses at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just outside Jerusalem. It's about a kilometer outside the city walls. And it's also about 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. So as Jesus pauses at this point, he and his disciples would have been able to look down onto the city. We know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem just before the Passover festival. It would have been warm, but not quite the peak of summer. Olive trees would have dotted the slopes of the mountain, hence its name. You can just about imagine a warm breeze moving through the olive grove, rustling its leaves. Maybe Jesus takes a moment here to wipe his brow and catch his breath after a long day's walk. At the foot of the Mount of Olives is where the Garden of Gethsemane is, where Jesus would go on the eve of his death. Jesus knew he would be back here in this very spot in a matter of days to weep and cry out to his Father in heaven, knowing his death was hours away. But before all of that, there are things Jesus has to do. Let's keep reading from the second half of verse 1. It says, He sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Now Jesus gives instructions to his disciples to get a colt, which is a young male donkey, that he will ride for the rest of the journey. Jesus knows the exact location of this donkey, and even knows that no one has ever ridden it. In Jewish tradition, an animal that belonged to a king was sacred and could not be ridden by anyone else. By choosing a colt as his transport, Jesus was making a bold statement about who he was. As Caitlin read earlier, in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah made a prophecy about 500 years before that said, rejoice greatly, daughter daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah's prophecy is announcing to Israel that their king will come to them. He will come to them righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Do you hear that? Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, but he also comes lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus is not coming on a battle horse in military might and royal pomp. He comes gently on a donkey. Jesus is not a king who is flexing his power, but one who comes in humility. Jesus is a different kind of king. This detail in the preparation of how Jesus comes into Jerusalem also tells us that Jesus is totally and completely in control. Nothing is a surprise to him. Jesus is not winging it. He has orchestrated the details in order to tell the world exactly who he is. In the chaos of the week following Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we need to remember that Jesus is completely in control. We know that in the next few days, Jesus will be betrayed, Jesus will be arrested, Jesus will be executed. But none of this is out of Jesus' hands. He knows what is about to happen and he acts deliberately to bring it about. Mark's gospel is dominated by two key questions. Number one, is Jesus the king? And number two, what kind of king is he? There are three short stories in Mark that I briefly want us to think about now that show different people answering these questions. Is Jesus the king? And if so, what kind of king is he? The first story happens a few chapters back in Mark 8 when Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And his disciples reply, Well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. They're all pretty bad answers, if you ask me. But then Jesus turns the question to them. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Christ. Awesome. Like, Peter gets it, right? He sees Jesus for who he really is, the Christ, the King. But does he? This Peter who confidently confesses that Jesus is king is the same Peter who denies Jesus after his arrest. Three times Peter is asked if he was with Jesus, and three times he denies that he even knows him. Does Peter really recognize Jesus as king? Or is it only when it's easy to do so? When the rubber hits the road and submitting to Jesus as king is costly, Peter denies him. Recognizing Jesus as king means sticking with Jesus even when it gets hard. It means aligning your actions with your words. Peter confessed Christ with his lips, but when push comes to shove, he denied him in his actions. Our second story is in Mark 10, which is just before our passage, when two other disciples of Jesus, James and John, ask him, Grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. James and John think that Jesus' kingship will be a glorious one, and they want in on the glory. Them asking Jesus to sit on either side of him is a way of asking to share in the glory and the power of King Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? He says, you do not know what you ask, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The cup that Jesus describes is the cup of God's judgment that he was about to drink on behalf of all humanity. And the baptism he refers to is the baptism of his own death. Jesus is saying, hold on. You say you want to share in my glory as king. Do you know what that will take? It means having God's wrath poured on me. It means a humiliating death on the cross. It means dying in shame and weakness. The irony in James and John's request to sit on Jesus' right and left-hand side in glory is contrasted with what happens later that week. On Good Friday, the day of Jesus' public execution on the cross, he is flanked on either side by two insurrectionists, Two criminals on either side of Jesus, hanging on their own crosses. No wonder James and John had no idea what they were asking. They wanted Jesus to be a powerful and glorious king. Like many Jews in their day, they were waiting for a king to come and overthrow the Roman Empire, to cleanse the land from paganism and reestablish Israel as the top nation in the world. But King Jesus was not about worldly glory or political power. No, Jesus tells us that he is the king who will suffer. He is the servant king. As he tells the disciples in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a few days time, the full meaning of how Jesus will be a servant, of how he would give his life as a ransom for many would be made clear. The final story to consider is right at the end of the last chapter, Mark 10, where we find Jesus and his disciples in Jericho, where Jesus heals a blind man called Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar sitting by the side of the road who hears that Jesus of Nazareth is nearby and he cries out to him saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. People try to shut him up, but he cries out to Jesus all the more. And Jesus hears him he stops and calls Bartimaeus to himself. He does what Bartimaeus asks of him, which is to restore his sight. Then Jesus says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Mark tells us that immediately, Bartimaeus recovered his sight and followed him. He followed Jesus on the way. Ironically, it is this blind man who literally can't even see Jesus who is the one who can recognize that he is the son of David, meaning he is Israel's true king. And he gets up and he follows him. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been showing people who he is. He is the king who will suffer and die for his people. He is the king who will be humiliated and tortured like a criminal. Do we recognize the kind of king that Jesus is? Verse 7 to 10 will then bring us to our next scene, the grand entrance. As a colt is brought to Jesus, the disciples put their cloaks on it before Jesus sits on it to ride into the city. And as he goes, people begin spreading their cloaks on the ground and tree branches too. So what's going on here? What do the cloaks and the branches have to do with Jesus? Well, even this is a statement about Jesus being the king. Back in the Old Testament, when Jehu was anointed king over Israel, back in two kings, cloaks were spread on the ground. It was a recognition of royal dignity. We might think of laying down a red carpet to welcome celebrities, or when a head of state is driving through a city and they have a police escort. When the President of America visits a city, it's not just a matter of him or her getting into a car and driving to their destination, no, they travel with a fleet of cars and secret service agents, uh, including their own personal uh, mobile communications office, a press corps, and even a hazmat unit and medical staff ready to spring into action in case there's a threat on their life. All of this is a way of communicating that the person approaching was important. It was a way to show them the respect and honor that their title deserves. And it's the same with the cloaks and the palm branches for Jesus. Let's listen in as to what people are shouting as Jesus makes his way into the city. Let's consider each of the phrases. So the first is, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew word that literally means, save us. It's present in the Psalms of praise, like Psalm 118. You can almost hear the chaos and the noise of the cheering crowd as jackets are being thrown around and branches are dropping to the floor. Uh, I tried to think of a modern-day equivalent. Uh, just for a second, imagine that you defy all odds and somehow you get a coveted ticket for Taylor's Errors tour. You choose the perfect outfit to tell the wor- world exactly how big a Swifty you are. You spend hours in line to get a good spot in the mosh and then, after hours of anticipation and waiting, finally, the lights go down. The spotlight appears, and there she is. The crowd would lose it. They would erupt in cheers and shouts and maybe even some tears. Jesus here is, is greeted with shouts of praise and honor that are fitting of a king. The crowds are crying out, save us, as Jesus walks past. It's an oddly prophetic greeting, but As we'll soon find out, the crowds didn't really know the full meaning of what they were shouting. Even the disciples wouldn't have been able to grasp the significance of this moment. The next part of the greeting is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's also from Psalm 118, and it was a common way to greet pilgrims who came to visit the temple. But the irony here is that Jesus is no ordinary pilgrim coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice to God. He comes to Jerusalem not as a pilgrim but a king and Jesus' sacrifice won't be offered at the temple in the heart of the city but instead on a hill outside the city walls. And the sacrifice won't be a bull or a goat but his own body. Do the crowds know who they are greeting? The next shout is blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And unlike the previous two greetings, this phrase is not part of Psalm 118 or any of the Psalms, but it speaks of the coming kingdom of David. Perhaps what the crowds have in mind was a return to the golden age of Israel's history. King David's rule was the peak, the very high point of Israel's story so far. God's people were finally in God's place, the promised land, and they were ruled by God's chosen king, King David. The crowds have King David and the glory days of Israel in their mind, but they also have the Exodus looming large in their collective memory. Remember that when Jesus is making his grand entrance into Jerusalem, it's almost Passover, the festival that remembered and celebrated how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. At Passover, God's people remembered his signs and wonders. They remembered the devastating plagues, They remembered the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. They remembered how God had moved heaven and earth to free them from slavery and bring them into a land of their own. Fast forward now to Jesus' time, and the Jewish people are now living under Roman rule. They longed for their king to be in power again, to be free from Roman oppression. But when Jesus preached about the kingdom, it wasn't the kingdom of David. It was the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't speak about political power, but God's transforming power. Not freedom from physical slavery, but freedom from slavery to sin, and not victory over a political power, but victory over death itself. What Jesus had in mind was so much greater than an earthly kingdom, but do the crowds know that, or are they confused? As they shout praises and greetings and welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, do they know what he's about to do? Or are they expecting a nationalistic leader to rise up against the Roman Empire, a fierce fighter who will lead them into battle, a mighty king who would make Israel great again? We can see that the crowds are welcoming Jesus like a king, but do they recognize him as the king he truly is? Mark's narrative tells us that they don't. Within a week, the crowd shouting praise and honor to Jesus becomes the crowd that calls for his death. The shouts of Hosanna and save us become, crucify him. Whether or not the crowds recognize Jesus as king when he entered Jerusalem, they certainly don't recognize him when he is led out of the city like a common criminal. This Jesus didn't look like the king that they expected. If we are people who recognize Jesus as our king, we have to be totally clear about what kind of king he is and what it means for us to follow him. If we only see Jesus as a glorious king and forget that his path to victory was suffering on the cross, we might expect our lives to be marked only by victory and glory too, and forget that suffering is part of the call that Jesus makes on our lives. In Mark eight thirty four, Jesus told his disciples and us that to follow him meant to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. To take up your cross was a fitting metaphor. It means to die to yourself, to die to your own desires or ambitions or ability to rule your life and to instead submit to Jesus as king and let his desires and his purpose set the agenda for your life. James and John were confident that they would be able to drink Jesus' cup and be baptized with Jesus' baptism. But when Jesus is being nailed to the cross, James and John are nowhere to be seen. The disciple Peter, after confidently confessing that Jesus was king, when his life is put at risk, he denies that he even knows him. The crowds who welcome Jesus into Jerusalem with praise and honor become the crowds who calls for his death. If we are to follow Jesus and respond to him as our king, we need to know the kind of king he is, that he is the suffering servant king. And that following him can and will be costly for us. That takes us now to our third and final scene, the anti-climax. From verse 11 we read, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We learn that it's actually the temple and not just the city, that's the destination of Jesus' entry. The temple was the center of Jewish faith and life right in the heart of God's city, Jerusalem. If Jesus is the king entering the temple would have been like coming into the capital city and going straight to the palace or to the president's house. Uh, But notice what happens or doesn't happen when he gets there. Jesus simply looks around and then he leaves. Notice the crowds have disappeared too. The joyful shouts have ceased and Jesus is all alone. If Jesus is the king that has come into his city, into his palace, shouldn't this be the moment that Jesus' kingdom is realized? But instead, Jesus' kingship is only fully revealed on a hill outside Jerusalem, as he is nailed on a Roman cross. The Roman soldiers who lead Jesus to his death mock him. They put a purple robe on him. They place a crown of thorns on his head and they sarcastically salute him. Hail the King of the Jews. They write the supposed charge that Jesus is guilty of on his cross, which simply states the King of the Jews. And the chief priests stand by and they watch as Jesus dies and they say, he saved others but he can't save himself. Let the Christ the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Jesus' death is dripping in tragic, heartbreaking irony. No one can see that Jesus is king. In fact, everyone from Pilate to the soldiers to the crowds mock that idea. They scoff at it. They think this Jesus is no king. This Jesus is weak. This Jesus is humiliated. This Jesus is a failure and a fool. And yet we know that it's in this moment of intense weakness and humiliation and shame that the true nature of Jesus' kingship is, re- is being revealed. It's in Jesus willingly giving up his life in absorbing the shame that is being heaped on him, in being punished like a criminal even though he is completely innocent, that Jesus is actually being crowned as our true king. This is King Jesus who willingly dies for all humanity, including the crowd who is calling for his death. The king who dies for the Roman centurions nailing his hands and feet. The king who dies for his beloved disciples who have deserted him and who hours before denied him. This king Jesus who dies for you and me, who doesn't wait until we're perfect or fixed up or up to scratch before he willingly lays his life down for us. As Romans 5.8 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is when we see Jesus for the true king that he is, the king who will give up his life for our sakes, the king who will take on our shame and our guilt and our brokenness, the king who will die for us, and in three days the king who will rise victorious over death for us. It's because of this that we know that Jesus is a king worth following he's a king worth receiving and responding to because he's the king who comes to save and to serve you might be here still investigating who Jesus is and figuring out what he was all about and how you might respond to him I would encourage you to read the gospels the biographies of Jesus life and help you explore that Uh, Mark is a really great one it's short and it's to the point and As I mentioned earlier, next month, we're launching Christianity Explored, which is a course that will help you explore Jesus, so uh, that might be a really great thing for you to do. You might already be convinced that Jesus is king. Do you understand what kind of king he is? That he is the suffering servant king, which means that if we're to follow him, we should expect to suffer and to serve as well. Do we understand that following Jesus as king might mean we're mocked by our friends, that our faith might be seen as outdated or out of touch, maybe even downright offensive? Do we embrace the fact that following Jesus as king might present challenges in our work or our study? Because having Jesus as our king means that our career or our studies will never be our number one priority. Do we get that following Jesus comes at the cost of our time and our energy and our desires? because we're not just seeking temporary pleasures or worldly success, but we wanna live a life that looks like Jesus. Alan Noble, a Christian author wrote that, the faithful Christian life looks like a thousand little deaths to self every day. Thousands of denials of our desires. Some of the desires that God will demand we say no to feel closer and truer than our own skin. So we know that following Jesus will not be easy. But following Jesus as king is so, so worth it. He is not a king who lords his power over us or a ruler that oppresses his people. No, Jesus is the king that loves us, the king who comes to save us, to redeem us, to make us whole, to bring us into his family and to give us purpose and meaning and identity and life to the full. This is King Jesus who serves us, who lays his life down for us to defeat sin and to conquer death and to be raised victorious to eternal life. This is King Jesus. He has come. Will we recognize him? Will we respond to him? If you've never asked Jesus to be your king, can I plead with you to do that? And if you are a follower of Jesus, can I challenge you to embrace him as your king, as our suffering servant king, knowing that following Jesus can be costly but it is so, so good and the best way to live. Jesus is also the king that is coming back to make all things new. In the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, we see King Jesus returning, and this time not on a humble donkey, but on a white horse. Revelation 19, verse 11 to 13 says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Verse 16 says that on his robe and on his thigh, Jesus' name is written as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is King Jesus who shed his blood for us and he's coming again in victory to set the world right, to bring us to glory with him. Jesus has told us what kind of king he is. Will we see him as our king? Will we respond to him as our king? Let me pray for us that we would. Jesus, we praise you as the Lord of lords and king of kings. We worship you as the promised king who who came to reconcile us back to God, to defeat sin and death, and to be raised in glory after three days. Would you help us recognize and respond to you as our king? Would you help us to follow you as our suffering servant king and live lives that looked like yours? Amen.